Good morning, everyone. So uh, we're going to be discussing this morning uh, baptism. And well, we already you're like we already did that uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. But there was another segment. This is like part three or part two. I'm kind of a little lost on where we are. But anyways, that there's a little bit more that we need to cover in that, and then we might get to a little bit of Israel in the church today. So buckle your seatbelts and um, get ready for a long nap this morning. So. We'll see how this goes. But let me start us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Our Father, thank you for this special weekend to take time to think about your Son, to think about His humanity, and how essential that is for us as humans. We need a representative We need someone like Job said who can place his hand on man and can place his hand on God. And there is no one who can do that except a God-man, the man Christ Jesus. And Lord, we worship you today. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And we thank you for the clear teaching of your word yesterday. And Friday night, may it make an impact into our thinking and into our living that we may be more Christ-like and may you get the glory as a result. Give us wisdom for this morning. Give us clarity of thinking. We're, we're tired. It's been a long and wonderful weekend. Lord, help us to be able to even more assess these important truths from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, just as a reminder, I'm Jay Street, so I'm the one that kind of administrates uh, BTI, and I grade your papers, and I don't even like to use the word term grade because I'm not giving you a letter grade. Um, I can if you want, but I think you'd probably prefer if I just put checks on your papers. Um, And you guys are doing a wonderful job, every single one of you. It's just I love reading what you're writing. And you guys are keeping up with the reading, and you don't always have to be on time just because we're covering a segment. Doesn't mean you have to have turned in that paper for that week. You can kind of catch up over time. Uh, as what was told to me when I first got here, this is Grace Bible Church. It's not Legalistic Bible Church. It's not School Bible Church. So uh, you, we uh, we will exercise lots of grace. Uh, again, you're not getting a like a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in Bible here. And so um, you guys are doing a great job and just keep it up and uh, really appreciate that. Let's dive in. I've got a lot that I want to cover today. I would like to get to Israel and the church if we can, but I just, knowing me, I just, I'm already doing it right now. I'm like just going off talking about stuff. So um, let's talk about Let's talk about baptism and kind of tie up some loose ends. Baptism, and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. Um, again, last time we did kind of a brief history, and we, that was uh, 
uh, Pastor Steve, he did a brief history on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, just as a reminder, we hold that Jesus specifically gave baptism and the Lord's Supper as two ordinances, as kind of like those visible signs of his special presence among us in the church. Uh, Now, what I want to talk about a little bit, and I do this sometimes, is uh, I've got just a host of notes. This is why it takes me forever to get through these notes. I like to add in a couple things, and so I've added in a couple things that aren't going to be on the slides here. And um, I also have my, uh, my Surface Pro here where I can draw. So we'll be able to do a little bit of uh, visuals here. That might be helpful. But let me uh, have you, help you think about this for a second. Baptism sometimes can get overlooked in this way. Oh, I just accidentally... Yeah, I'm going to use that drawing anyways. Here we go. So um, baptism... Uh, can often be overlooked as the symbol of death. Now, some you might know that already. The, the baptism has a death component to it. We see that in Romans chapter 6. I think we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, but baptism, especially when it relates to water, is symbolic in regards to death. Okay, And we see this in Scripture a lot. In fact, we see it at the very beginning. Um, It may not be very clear at the very beginning, but Genesis chapter 1, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, yes? And then... Uh, now the, he says, now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Water is there when God creates, he creates heaven and earth, and water begins at the beginning. And the implication there is this is before there is light, before there are plants, before there are animals, and before there is man. In other words, before there is any life except for God. Water kind of has this idea of lifelessness or death. You're like, really? Yeah, I know that's a little contrived. It might sound a little contrived. But consider the, the greatest catastrophe on the planet, the global flood, right? Involved a lot of water, right? Death. And then we see Israel's history, their nation, was formed around water, which happens at that iconic episode of the Red Sea, And water there, again, becomes a symbol of death. If they go into the Red Sea, they all drown. And what's interesting, too, historical details on this are prevalent everywhere. Uh, Israelites were not seafarers. Have you ever, like, thought about that before? It's, like, only, like, during Solomon's time were they using a lot of boats, and they would go down to the um, to Eilat, which is a city down on the uh, Red Sea area, actually. And then they would do a lot of trading with their boats. That's about the extent of what we see Israel as a nation doing seafaring. Why? There's a lot of history that talks about how there's just a fear of water. Their whole nation was founded around the fact that we don't need wa- we don't need water to get around. Why? Because we're in the Land, right? We're in the land that God has given us. There's no water that we need to cross. And here's an interesting and really cool thing. In the new heavens and in the new earth, 
Revelation 21. Actually, turn your Bibles over to Revelation 21 for a second. I want you to see this. Your eyes need to see this. Because John saw it. He starts out in Revelation 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Oh, interesting. Why? Because water was a symbol of death. And, here's another really important thing, seas divide people, don't they? Don't they? Right? Even today, you're like, well, we have planes. Yeah, but it's really hard and really expensive to go see someone across a sea, isn't it? And COVID really made that hard. Um, And the world is just heading that direction toward isolation again. Seas divide, but in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no more seas. There's still water, but it's just in rivers. So water does have a symbol of life, too. It's really funny. It's like, you need water to survive, right? It's like essential, like in the desert. But it's also a symbol of death, especially when you're dealing with seas. Now, this is what gets to where we want to go here. The baptism of Jesus. Because okay, when we think about our own baptism, and, and the question is, how does this relate? Because I think sometimes we're just like, out of nowhere, Christians just need to be baptized. And you're like, why do we need to be baptized? Well... Uh, because Jesus was baptized. Yes, good. And he died and rose again, and it has this, yes, those, that's all, all true. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Uh, I don't know. You know, like, well, why does, he, why does that need to happen? And the key here is that, and I, if you picked up on this, Pastor Steve preached an amazing sermon uh, at the beginning of his Matthew series where he begins to talk about the beginning of Matthew and how one story after another is connecting us backwards. You might have picked up on this. The baptism of Jesus has a very important connection that can be easily overlooked. And it is that it connects with the Red Sea. You're like, really? It does? Yes, it does. In fact, you can say this. I'm going to start drawing. Okay, so here we go. Um, I think. Oh, it's in red. Cool. I didn't plan that. It just happened. This is us. Sorry, that looks really awful. But this is us. And this is Jesus. And we'll give him a smile because, you know, he's always full of love and, and grace, right? And so what's happening here is that this is Israel here. There is an intentional connection going backwards. That as Jesus represents us, in other words, our baptism came because of him. And his baptism became because of them. That's what's going on. Jesus has to fulfill, he says, all righteousness. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We'll look at the baptism of Jesus. And um, Matthew goes way out of his way to demonstrate throughout the beginning chapters of Matthew. I literally spent um, a whole session talking about this with the youth here not a few weeks ago. 
uh, I think it was back in August actually, and showed how just in Matthew alone, how many connections Jesus has to Israel going way back. Uh, so I'll let them tell you about it because uh, I don't have time. But uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee to the Jordan, to the Jordan River. Uh, and he arrived coming up... To John, it says, to be baptized by him. And John, now this is, we would expect this. John is like, no, no, no. Was trying to prevent him saying, hey, I have need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me to be baptized? Uh, let's not do that. And Jesus says, no, this is important. I mean, that's, that's good. It's, it's, it's a great posture to have, a humble posture, John. But he said, permit it at this time. For it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? I don't have time to go into explain this in detail, but when we go from Matthew 1 to Matthew 2 to Matthew 3 to Matthew 4 to Matthew 5, every chapter is communicating over and over and over again through all of the story and, and what's going on that Jesus is connecting to Israel. He's, connect, he's walking in the footsteps of Israel. It's actually a timeline. You know, like when uh, Herod wants to kill all the baby boys? I think Pastor Steve mentioned this in a sermon. That should sound super familiar, right? There's only one other time that ever happened in the history of mankind. Well, we would think it did, right? And it would be Pharaoh, right? So what is Jesus doing? He's representing Israel. He is the new Moses. He is a better Moses. He is a better Israel. Then he went down to Egypt. Who else went down to Egypt? Israel. And Abraham, actually, which is another connection going back, right? But, right, you have... Israel went down to Egypt, Jesus went down to Egypt, and then Jesus has to come out of Egypt. And then Matthew just communicates it clearly. This was to fulfill the scripture. That out of Egypt, I called my son. You're like, well, if you know your... If you know Hosea 11.1, and if you know the context, Matthew, you took that out of context. Because that passage is not speaking about Jesus. It specifically says Israel. But see, that's the point. He is the new and better Israel. So when we get into chapter 3, this is to fulfill all righteousness. He's walking in another footstep as he crosses through water into his ministry. Just as Israel crosses through water into their nation, the, new, the newness of their nation. Um, after Israel is literally baptized, not, not literally, figuratively baptized, into the Red Sea. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10, right? They're baptized into the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness to be tested. Yes? So was Jesus right after that. And led by the Spirit, just like Israel was led by a pillar of cloud in the desert to be tested. And then Jesus responds and actually does it correctly. And Israel failed. And it, Jesus did it, or Israel did it for 40 years, yes? And Jesus did it for 40 days and 40 nights. You see the connections? Like, it's not like we're just pulling this out of thin air. And then, you know, Jesus got up on a mountain and he began to teach a sermon, a sermon that began with instructing on the true intent of the Old Covenant law. Yeah? Who else was on a mountain giving a law? 
Yahweh God on Mount Sinai. Yes? And Jesus is saying, you heard that it was said this, but I say to you, he speaks with all authority from the mountain. Why? Because he's making himself equal with Yahweh. And that's why at the end of the sermon, they're all amazed, right? They're amazed not because, man, he is such a good speaker. He's so eloquent in his speech. They don't say that. It doesn't say that. It says, they were amazed because he spoke with such authority. What does that mean? He's not like their scribes who cite Old Testament passages. That's not a knock on the scribes. The scribes are doing the right thing. They're supposed to be citing scripture. But he doesn't. Why? Because he says, I am the authority. I am Yahweh. Yeah? Okay? Just a little bit of a... I just want to make sure you understand that. We don't have time to go into more detail on that. But this is baptism. This is what the baptism of Jesus is signifying. It takes us back to the Red Sea. It's supposed to connect us to that. And it's supposed to show us that Jesus goes into the water. Now, what happened with Israel? Did they go into the water, technically? No. Otherwise, they would have drowned. You see how Jesus is not only comparing himself with Israel and saying, like, I am like you. He's also saying, I'm going where you couldn't have gone. Yeah? Because what my life is going to represent is actually going into the water. And water is a symbol of death. I'm going to die where you should have died. You should have died at the hands of Egypt or drown fleeing in the Red Sea. That's what should have happened. But I am going to do this for you. I am a better you. That's what Jesus is saying. All right, so, um, wow, I'm pretty sure like half of our time is gone. It's not, but it almost is. All right, so let's look over at Romans chapter 6. Look at Romans chapter 6. This is reinforced here that the baptism and the water associated with baptism is... Relating to death. Romans chapter 6. What therefore shall we say? This is verse 1. What shall we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace should multiply or should increase? Um, side note. Uh, it's, it's easy to think like, oh man, these Romans, they were struggling with licentiousness. They just wanted to use the grace of the gospel so they could sin more. That's not what's actually being talked about here. Um, these are rhetorical questions spoken to an imaginary opponent that Paul has actually constructed to instruct his audience how to reason with that person. And so he's saying, hey, the skeptic, who is probably more Jewish than anything, the skeptic who loves the law and hates immorality, at least behaviorally speaking, he's going to say, the grace of the gospel basically is just being used by you so that you can be licentious. And I'm going to teach you how to respond to him. Because that's not what you want, and that's not what I want, and that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what the gospel's about. So when it says, what shall we say, it's basically saying, what should we say to him? What should we say to this unbelieving Jewish skeptic of the gospel? Should we continue in sin so that grace should increase? Nope. Nope. Let me show you why. May it never be, we who died to sin, how would we still live in it? Or do you not know, whoever, uh, we whoever were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his 
death. You see how their water is associated with death. Okay? Uh, that's an important passage when it comes to, to baptism. And they're baptized into his death. And, uh, and that, that helps us to see why it's even associated with Jesus' baptism, which really signifies death. Signifies that he's drowning in the Red Sea instead of, instead of Israel. Um, I like this phrase. I think I got it from Douglas Moo, who's a commentator. He's a really good commentator. Um, the only thing I don't line up with him is his views of Israel and the church, but he's a really, really good commentator. And his um, commentary on Romans, in case you're interested, is probably the best commentary uh, that's written in a single volume. <laughs> um, Lloyd-Jones had several sermons transcribed into... It's like his volumes are like this on Romans. And they're really... I mean, they're powerful and they're wonderful. Uh, I would recommend those to you as well. Um, but in terms of scholarly work and just easy to understand... You don't read the footnotes because they're really complicated, but just read the text that he writes there, and it is really good stuff. It's like this thick. It's like this thick of a commentary. I have my students buy it because I teach a Romans class at Masters, um, and I just want them to have it as a resource. I'm like, consult it in the class, but use it down the road. Uh, bestcommentaries.com gives it a 98% out of 100. Um, I know that you're like, why would you ever go to bestcommentaries.com? Uh, it's actually a really good site. It's actually evangelical guys that are in our circles that have actually rated commentaries. So if you're ever like, what are the best commentaries on this? Go to bestcommentaries.com. Like, are you selling something? What is... It sounds like a marketing... Like, who owns that domain? Like... Um, no, it really is legit. <laughs> like, you're like, I know you're looking it up right now. You're like, this can't be real. It is. It's really cool. I go there all the time, and uh, John's com- Carson's commentary gets 100 uh, in John, which is like there's no other commentary in the whole list of any commentary that gets 100. So um, it's really cool. Uh, anyways, what was I saying? Yeah, Moo's commentary on Romans um, is an excellent resource. And he says this, uh, Christ became like us so that we would become like him. Christ became like us so that we would become like him. Well, how did Christ become like us? Well, in many ways, but in one sense, he became, right? He who knew no sin became sin, yeah? He became like us, right? Uh, And he died the death that we should have died. Why? So that we would become like him. So that we would live his life, yeah? Uh, That's a beautiful encapsulation of that truth, I think. Uh, Now, I don't, think I'm going to go over here because this is going to more confuse because I don't have time to um, unravel this, but 1 Peter 3.21 is a complicated text. talks about baptism now saves you. And you're like, oh no! Like, So we have to be baptized in order to be saved. No, it's not what it's talking about. Uh, and I wish I could get into that. But uh, this all connects. It all corresponds. And I don't even know why I mentioned it because I'm not going to go there. But you, you can ask me another time and I can try and explain it to you. Um, and uh, but that, that, that is important because you actually see, let me just put it this way, you actually see baptism there connected to the flood. Because he talks about Noah, just as Noah and his family were saved, right? And then he talks about baptism now saves you. You can see how water and death are connected even with the flood. Okay. Um, Hebrews 10.22 talks about uh, the cleansing of the conscience with water, water being sprinkled on your conscience. Uh, and that is actually also a connection to First Peter chapter 3, which brings those two together, which is really, really cool. And uh, I, again, I want to get into more of that, but I don't think 
we have time to get into that right now. Uh, another thing, and uh, let me go ahead and move slides here. Um, sorry if I've missed some things here for you. Okay, no, we're, we're on the right thing. We just missed this slide right here. <laughs> so I don't think that's a whole lot. Um, Isaiah 44 verse 3 is going to bring this out with water connected to the new covenant. Water is connected to the new covenant. And uh, this is a promise that we see often, like Isaiah 44 verse 3, uh, talking about, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. And you can see how there's that terminology of not just, I'm just going to give you my spirit. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. There's water language, yeah? Like pouring out of a pitcher or something. Ezekiel 36, we see this very explicitly, connecting it to the Old Covenant, actually. Because remember in Exodus 24, when the Old Covenant is inaugurated, Moses sprinkles blood upon the people, yeah? That's the connection here with the New Covenant as well. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle on you clean water, not mixed with blood, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. So this is why we, the new covenant is a, an advancement, a better covenant than the old covenant. It's really replacing the old covenant. And I will put my spirit upon you. Again, Ezekiel 36, a promise of the new covenant that has not yet come. And then Joel, Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come, come to pass afterward that I will, again, pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's that term, pour out again. Very much a reference to what we saw with Isaiah 44, that pouring out. And then one that I added that's not on here is John 3.5. Let's look at John here momentarily. This is interesting. John's discussion here with Nicodemus is packed full of truth and uh, difficult to unravel. But some things I think we can pick out immediately. It says, now there was a man, this is chapter 3, verse 1, John 3, 1. There was a man from among the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And he came to him, that is Jesus, by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one is able to do these signs which you are doing unless God is with them. And then Jesus gets right to the point. He says, and he said, he answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you should be born from above or born again, you are not, uh, if someone should be born again, I should say, uh, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. And so then Nicodemus says to him, well, how is it a person uh, is able to be born while being old? Uh, he is not able to go into his mother's womb again for a second time and be born again, can he? And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone should be born from water and spirit, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of God. Water and spirit, that should sound really familiar. 
Those are the passages that we were just reading. What is Jesus alluding to? It's the new covenant. That's what he's alluding to. This is new covenant terminology, and it is associated with water and the Spirit. And so what we see here is that water also has a connection to cleanliness. It's cleaning you. And what we saw with 1 Peter 3 and Hebrews 10, there is a cleansing of your conscience, a cleansing of your conscience, which is essential for your Christian thinking and for your Christian living under the new covenant. It has to happen. We also see it hinted at, I don't, well, I shouldn't say hinted at, because most manuscripts have this word in the text. But it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a clean heart. That word clean is in most manuscripts. Your Bible might not have it. You might have to look at a footnote to see like some manuscripts say clean. I would argue that word is there. Because what we're seeing here is there's an allusion here to the New Covenant. The New Covenant terminology, this is what a New New Testament Christian has, is a clean heart. And so baptism not only symbolizes death, it also has a cleanliness uh, symbol to it. Now, baptism has its roots... In, we also see in the baptism of John. We saw that where John was baptizing not just Jesus, but uh, several people. And he was saying, hey, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and prepare yourself for the Messiah. And so, with it being associated with John's baptism, we see that it's uh, really a way in which Jewish proselytes were converted, right? Or people who were trying to convert to Judaism. It was a, it was a way and a means by which they demonstrated that conversion. Uh, proselyte baptism concerned the purity of the person before the law of Moses. So it's like cleansing yourself and preparing yourself to become, be like a, you know, a Gentile who wants to convert to Judaism. But there's still some division there, right? Like you're not going to become an Israelite necessarily. Uh, but you want to convert to the religion of Judaism. There would be a baptism process, like cleansing of the old life, and now I'm like clean and new, and I'm ready to start. It's like when you get a shower in the morning, ready to start the day. You know, like we're starting something brand new. Uh, John's baptism, we see then, is this kind of proselyte, or at least preparing the Jewish people to cleanse themselves from the defilements of exile. And preparing them for the Messiah. And John's baptism of repentance was done in light of the nearness of the coming king. Because Jesus has now arrived. And he's literally about ready to start his ministry when John is baptizing. Uh, Baptism, then, you could say, is equivalent to, in this case, conversion to a religion. And... You could almost picture it as you're dying to what you previously held to, and you're walking by this new order, this new life that you have. Uh, and it's interesting, and I've heard this said, and I, I haven't cross-checked this, but I'm fairly confident this was said truthfully, and it was in a sermon. Uh, but when a Jew professes faith in Christ, and when a Jew becomes a Christian... 
the Orthodox Jewish family is obviously very concerned when they become a Christian. That's true. But when a Jew is baptized into Christianity, some Jewish family members hold funerals for that person. That's how far gone they believe that person is gone. Why? Because baptism is a symbol of you have died to the Jewish Orthodox faith and you are no longer one of us. That's how serious baptism is held in Judaism. And we need to understand that when we think about that in ancient Near Eastern times, it was taken very seriously. Baptism into another religion was huge. So you understand why, like, when there's an emphasis in Acts, like, people, like, be baptized. Why? Because you want to show the genuineness of what you're doing? You're, you're, you're putting your life on the line. People will think you're dead to us. And we, we, we'll kill you, too. And then you're dead to us. Okay. Baptism, uh, the word to baptize in the Greek is baptizo. Baptizo. It's up here on the screen. You can see it uh, transliterated there. Baptizo. And it's in italics. And it means to dip or to Im- uh, immerse. I love it in, in my notes here because, you know, Steve was compiling a lot of this. He says, uh, or in the Texan, it means to dunk. Okay. <laughs> I wish he said it, because that would have been just gold. Baptizo, it actually only occurs twice in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. The Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, We really follow primarily the Hebrew text, right? But the Greek translation is helpful to us at times. And uh, twice it occurs in, in the Old Testament Greek version. Uh, once is actually debatable. Um, uh, on the on the translation in Isaiah chapter twenty one verse four, uh, and then the other, it's interesting. The word that is used there, that's translated uh, to you know, baptizo, it's using baptizo. Uh, the other passage is in Second Kings chapter five verse fourteen, where Naaman, if you remember, uh, is uh, baptized or he goes in and dips into the water seven times. Okay, and dip may not be a Dip is kind of like, you know, like stick your foot out into the water, like, uh, dip. You know, like that's almost like how we get it, like dip, or you just kind of like wade in there a little bit. I mean, it's like he's literally going in there like full, he's putting his whole body in, right? Going pretty much under the water, basically, would be the idea. Uh, so we see that in in the, the context there where baptizo is used. Um, now, there is actually a term for actual dipping in the New Testament. It's not quite the same as baptizo. And it's very similar, though. It's bapto, okay? So they're very much related. But bapto kind of has more of the idea of to dip. Uh, and uh, baptizo has a little bit more of this, like, full dunking, the Texan would say, right? Full dunking, full immersion. Um, and the Old Testament word that's often used to relate to this, to this kind of uh, either immersion or even dipping, is tabal. Okay, tabal is the word that's in the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew term, the Hebrew term for this. And um, 
And this, this could be used for dipping. So, for instance, tabal, dipping in, in Hebrew, it's used when the priest like dips his finger into either like blood or into water or something like that and then puts it on his other hand or, or something like that. He'll use that term to, to dip. Now, there's also words for sprinkling in the Bible. You've seen those, right? We already talked a little bit about that in the New Testament. The word in the New Testament is, are you ready for this one? Chrantizo, okay? It has a little bit of a guttural chrantizo, okay? Uh, and uh, I think our Spanish brothers and sisters will love that. Or maybe not, not guttural, I guess. No, I'm thinking of German. Never mind. Okay. So, all that to say. Um, but in, in Hebrew, the term, there's two different terms for sprinkling, naza and zarak. Naza and zarak. And you see these kind of used interchangeably a lot. Um, and you actually see it like in Isaiah 52 where it says he'll sprinkle many nations, right? It says that sprinkled term. Naza is the word that's used there. Uh, and we see that associated with the new covenant. We already saw that with Ezekiel 36. There's this kind of, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And so I understand, and what, you're like, where are you going with this? I understand why sometimes you see in different circles why people, when they're baptized, they are sprinkled. Yeah? I understand why people would do that, because it's, it's in the Bible. But it, there's, a, there's an important point here. Uh, I'm arguing for this point of immersion. Why? It should be clear now to you why immersion is important. Because water is a symbol of what? Death. How do you die from water when you are sprinkled? Yeah. <laughs> like trying to drown in the water. Can't do that. What is the picture that's supposed to be portrayed? You are what? Yeah, you're drowning. Yeah. So I understand why people like, you know, they're making a connection to the new covenant, right? But they're missing the point of baptism ultimately. It's nice that they want to connect it to the new covenant, but and that's true, but really... When we're talking about sprinkling, sprinkling in the New Testament is always described as God is sprinkling your conscience, sprinkling your heart. Uh, when it comes to baptism, you're associating with Jesus' death. Yes. Uh, it's, I think it's funny. Like, you think about like the Ethiopian eunuch, you know? It's like, hey, look. Remember he says this? Look, there's water. What is preventing me from being sprinkled? No, he didn't say that, right? What is preventing me from being baptized? And then they both go down into the water. Yeah? Now that brings up another question. Why can't we just dunk ourselves in baptism? You know, like why don't we just put the baptism up there, a baptismal, and then just everyone goes down and like, you know, I'm being baptized for Jesus. And then you go like, go under the water and you come back up and you're like, right? Why can't you do that? Right? <laughs> It's like, it is, it's a silly question. I thought about it, I was like, should I put this in here? But um, it's a silly question, but I think it's important, actually. Why do we have someone else baptize us? Uh, Because you need someone to help you fulfill that full immersion process. Not that you can't do it yourself physically, but someone, the picture is, someone must carry you through the water from death into life. Someone must carry you through, right? The Lord is the one that not just puts to death our old life. He raises us to new, new life, doesn't he? Baptism symbolizes death, sure. But then it's also what? The coming out. You don't just die to die. You die so that you might rise again. And that pictures Israel in the Red Sea, and it pictures Jesus in his baptism, yes? God brought Israel through the Red Sea. John 
then pictures Jesus. He is actually baptizing Jesus. Not that Jesus needs this done for him necessarily, but it's picturing I am Israel and there was someone carrying through to bring me out to the other side. Baptism is also part of the Great Commission. We see this on here in the slide. And uh, baptism as instituted by Jesus, goes beyond just proselyte baptism, not just converting to a religion. It's also linked to the complete salvation that is found in Christ. And baptism is part of the Great Commission that we see in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them, yes, in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, This was practiced, baptism was practiced often in the early church. And uh, you can see the references there, you can take note of those. Acts chapter 2, we see that a couple times there in Acts chapter 2, where it really becomes the foundation. It's really the, the picture that I'm becoming a Christian, I am converting to this religion. Uh, chapter 8 it's used, and then chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 16, and so forth. Uh, and you see a lot, often it's combined with repent and then be baptized. It's a command, uh, not that baptism necessarily saves you, but it is commanded because uh, in that context, that helped to prove the genuineness of the repentance. In a context of persecution and death for that kind of conversion. Uh, The thought of an unbaptized Christian, the thought of an unbaptized Christian was foreign to the New Testament. It's just not, you just don't see that. It's just not there. Now, moving on to our, our next slide here, significance of baptism Baptism signifies our identification identification with Christ. We identify with Christ in that. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, Baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ. We see that connected, and we saw that in the Great Commission, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And this act indicates that the person was entering the lordship and power of Christ. And I might even add, this is where they enter into the ownership of Christ, where Christ owns them. They are now owned by Him. Baptism signifies the washing away of sin. We saw that already. And um, we see how baptism signifies death. We've talked about that most extensively here. Uh, Also, identification with the church. And that's important. Because if you're going to be part of the called out ones, the church, being baptized helps associate you with the church in that way. And then what's interesting, too, is that most every baptism in Acts that you see really takes place immediately following one's confession of faith. It was something that you just automatically do. You repent and you believe in the Messiah. And then you are baptized Pretty much right after that. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch couldn't be more immediate. You know, he's like, "I get it. I believe." Water. You know, like, let's do it. You know, like, it like doesn't matter where you are. Like, let's do it. Um, that's so great. So, uh, and I and again, I already mentioned this, but baptism was forged into Christianity around 
uh, persecution and and those who were baptized were very likely saved already because it really just put their faith to the test immediately. Are you going to convert under the threat of death? Um, and and when, when you think about that, this is why we're a little bit more conservative where we don't Oh, we're not always pushing people right away. You've got to be baptized right now, right now, right now. Especially when we're dealing with our children. Because we don't always know whether the faith is genuine or not. Um, you can see why someone would be baptized right away in that culture. Because you've got to make that identification now. You've got to prove it. You gotta, it's just got to be proved. Like, uh, and, and we do too. Like, we need to be immediate. I think that's exactly right. But at the same time, when you're dealing with young children... Um, and they make a profession of faith, you know, honor, you, know, you, you can honor that, you know, in word, like, we, you know, we're going to take you at your word. We're going to treat you like a Christian, but we're going to hold you accountable like a Christian, right? Uh, but do we baptize you right away? Mm, you know, let's wait. Let's, let's see. Let's see. Let's see the fruit. Let's see. see uh, we don't have the context to really test the fruit. It's not like, the child's going you know, under danger of being put to death because they declared being a Christian in your home. Uh, in in the early church, it was much different than that. So, we w- want to we want to obviously uh, ba- get our have our children be baptized when they make profession of faith. But sometimes there is wisdom in waiting a little bit to see if it's is genuine. Uh, it's interesting that Steve notes here. He says almost every single person I baptize personally has been baptized prior to coming to actual saving faith. It's true. A lot of people get baptized and then they really hear in the true gospel for the first time and that then they come to saving faith and they're like my baptism I really need to associate truly with the Lord. So all right, that that kind of deals with baptism there, and it might be good for me to stop um, because that's such a big topic of its own. Before I get to the Lord's Supper, are there any quick questions you have? And I, I'm kind of scared to even ask that because I'm like, I don't even know if I can have a good answer. But yeah, just about the oh. Roman Catholic infant, uh, how did that come about? Is that just tradition, or how did they get that? Yeah, yeah, that that's a practice. That's a great question. Yeah, and there are even brothers and sisters in evangelical circles that will practice right, right. paedo baptism, yeah, infant baptism. That's right. Yeah, and I, I wish I knew more of the history on some of that. I, I would love to look into that myself. Um, uh, you know, I know that there is a... Um, I know Steve has mentioned this a few times in the past, but there is a connection with um, being a part of the family of God okay. in baptism. And baptism really is thought of as the New Testament's version of circumcision. So, and, and this gets into the whole issue of hermeneutics and, you know, the church replacing Israel and that kind of thing. Because if we're replacing Israel, then, okay, what, what's going to replace circumcision? Well, baptism, you know. And it's like, where is that in Scripture? It's not. But we had to find something to make the connection. So, again, I don't want to speak for them because I don't want to say that that's how they thought it through. But I don't think the reasoning is quite biblical there that for pedo baptism for infant baptism. It's just... Uh, it's nice. It's nice that they want to baptize. But those children are not saved. They're not. You know, and, and so their baptism is not one of repentance. It's one of just being incorporated into the family. And then a lot of them go and walk away from the Lord. It doesn't mean anything. You know, they got, they got a bath. You know, as, as Steve talks about, you know, I got a bath when I was a baby. You know, and so it's like and I have the, the clothes to show it. You know, like he got baptized. So just the way that it is. But yeah, good question. Yeah, Sam, I know you had a question. Yeah, yeah two part question. One is, does the Bible teach any 
any other requirements other than a confession of faith to be baptized? And part two, yeah. the Bible teaches uh, who can and cannot baptize someone else? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, confessional faith. I don't know of any other requirement to be baptized except that you've got to be a genuine believer. Um, it needs to be done under the confines of the local church, I'm convinced. When you look at the logic of Scripture, it's got to be with the local church because, again, it's identifying with the church. Uh, so, but the, the, the faith also needs to be a genuine, it can't just be like, yeah, I believe Jesus exists, you know, that kind of, obviously, right? And I know that's not what you're saying. You're saying really like confessing the faith and really adopting that. And of course, when we talk about confession, we're talking about repentance. So we're repenting from sin. And, and then repentance not just mean like, oh yeah, I believe that that was sin. It's like repentance means turning your life around and like you need to show the fruit of that. So baptism needs to be a part of that. When it comes to who baptizes, and I was, that was, the question was literally crossing my mind as like Philip is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch as I was like reading. I was like, yeah, that's interesting. Like Philip is the one that commissioned by Jesus. It's part of the Great Commission. So make disciples, baptizing them. Who's commissioned to do this? It's Jesus' uh, representatives. And then those representatives appoint leaders. And those leaders continue on baptizing. So I would, I would lean on the fact that we're, we're talking about church leaders need to be the ones that are baptizing people. And it needs to be in the context of the local church. And people need to see it. it needs to have. I know with the Ethiopian eunuch, that was a little bit of a unique situation. Um, give them a pass. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to people need to witness it because they need to know you were baptized. And you're making a public, you hear that terminology a lot, right? A public profession of faith. That's what that is. So, yeah. And a follow-up to that question that, that brings up an interesting point is why don't we do baptisms in the public instead of just our church? <sighs> That's a good question, too. Um, church history has kind of governed some of this where it's, it's convenient, um, where we are all together at that time, and this is the, the time of the week that we're all together. Um, in theory, technically, it is open to the public because the public can come into the church and watch if they want it. Yeah. Just the public doesn't care. Uh, it's really a matter of finding water in Bakersfield. To <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, you know, but it doesn't have to be done in the church building. It can be done at a pool, you know, someone's house. I was baptized in a pool when I was a kid. Um, it's great. Uh, so, you know, I, it, it just depends upon what, I think that that's the most convenient thing, and it's and and the, the people who need to be there are the is the church. The world can be there if they want to be, and that would be great if the world watched. That's in my opinion. I don't know, but it's a great question. Yeah. Facebook Live. What's that? This is Facebook Live. <laughs> that's right. Record. Oh, and that's the thing too. Is like we are recording our sermon. So I mean, or, you know, our our, our uh, uh, yeah, our se- our sessions that we have and our, our services, uh, you know, and people can watch them. I, so the world might be watching. You know, when you're getting baptized, so it's neat. Good. Any other questions on baptism? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure if I've developed this question yet, but the, but the question comes from seeing baptism in the eyes of Christ, uh, not his baptism, but ours, mm-hmm. and those who have been previously baptized, thinking that they were saved, but yes. were not saved. Right. Okay. So I've heard it said, and I don't know if it was Martin Lloyd Jones, but I've heard it said that we need to repent of our repentance. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. So I kind of attach that to baptism as well. Mm. Repent of previous baptisms. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of gets subordinated underneath repenting for the fact that I was living a lie. Right. Um, I was not living as a true Christian. And my there's always a conscience factor that comes into that. Yeah. Um, so I think I think you could maybe subordinate that under there. I'm not as. Yeah, I think the, there's a bigger issue, though, than just the baptism. I mean, it, I think it's just we the old baptism was just you got. You know, another bath, you know, kind of thing. And but but and so it, you just got to understand that you're realizing that baptism was not legitimate. Right. And really, the Lord is the one that ultimately knows whether any of our baptisms are legitimate. Right. Even the ones that we believe and are convinced before the Lord as humanly possible as we have full conviction. Yeah, I'm saved. But who knows that ultimately? The Lord. It's not like the Bible says, like, Jay, you're saved. Don't worry about it. You know, like. It doesn't say that. So um, the Lord is the one that knows whether we are saved or not. And the Lord knows ultimately whether a baptism really is associated with that genuine um, conversion. So, so that's why yeah. it's left your conscience then? I think from a human perspective, yes, there's a conscience factor that goes into that. And, and um, yeah, but I think that's, that's, that's good. Good question. Yeah. It wasn't really a question. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Great, great comments. Yeah. yeah. I'm still developing the question. <laughs> Good. That's great. Wonderful. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think about what you said with the two um, times that you were talking about the conscience or actually the intention of seeing the fruit bearing. Yes. And so to her question, do I see fruit bearing? Yeah. As opposed to just being dipped. Right. Um, so over and over again, and is it a testimony among my brothers? Yeah. Okay, that they mm-hmm. can also hold me accountable yes. to that. Right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Sorry, did you have a question in there? I didn't know no, if I. I was just oh, you're just. You're just a, yeah. Great, great comment. That's a, yeah. excellent observations. Yes, yes. Very, very good. Yeah, fruit of repentance. And, you know, that's a little bit of a gray area of wisdom to know, you know, whether there's genuineness there and you see some fruit bearing and, you know, it's time, it's time to get baptized. But uh, getting baptized, the sooner the better is, is good. But. You know, you also want to be, you know, you should start seeing fruit right away if you're a genuine Christian. It shouldn't be too long that you need to get baptized. So at least that's where I would land. So good. Yeah, Derek. Yeah. That's kind of David's question. It's kind of like devil's advocate. But you said, you know, these babies being baptized, they're not saved. Right. But these babies before an age of accountability right. are still under God. Right. If being baptized. Right. Yeah. Not fully wrong. Right, right. So, and yeah, that's a toughie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they have not made the association profession to associate with Jesus Christ. That's huge. Because when we're talking about baptism, it's associating. Uh, no one really should be baptized until they're making intentional identification with Jesus. So, that was the story. John MacArthur kind of had a on that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes, yes. Well, now R.C. Sproul knows the truth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's terrible. Let's cut that from the record. Um, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Let me see if I can kind of blast through. I, well, we only have five minutes left, so I, I could almost cut it off here. But just really quickly on the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table. Instituted by Christ. Again, we've covered a lot of this already, so hopefully I can just breeze through this really quick. Instituted by Christ. 
On the night before his death, Jesus used the setting of the Feast of Passover to institute the Lord's Supper, which would be a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me, yes? Uh, This event was recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also Paul kind of talks about it a little extensively and gives us a little bit more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We see that. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, it's practiced by the early church, so we see this, and you can see some of the references there. I know they're small, so sorry. Um, the, you see this practiced by the early church in Acts chapter 2, a couple times there. By the way, right next to baptism, which is interesting. So you kind of see baptism and Lord's Supper kind of like in tandem there. Twice, both of them twice. Uh, chapter 20, also a couple times. Uh, Acts chapter 2 it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, and they were often, this is very interesting, but often eaten, they would take the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a meal. Okay, that's interesting. We don't do that. Okay, this is interesting. Like, one of the things I'm like, huh, our version of the Lord's Supper looks quite different. Still got all of the essential components. I'm not, it's not wrong. We're doing fine. But it looks quite different than the way it looked in the early church. It wasn't like microscopic bread. And, you know, like this little like plastic cup and, you know, that kind of thing. Sanitary issues, but they would carry around the same loaf and you pull off a piece, you know, and uh, drink from the same cup. (laughs) No, no, backwash. But um, that was that was practice back then. That's that's the way it was. And there are actually some really important features to that. Why? Because let me just emphasize this. The Lord's Supper is about unity. I can't emphasize that enough. And it is not emphasized a lot in our um, evangelical circles historically with Lord's Supper. It's usually about individualism, isn't it? Me and my relationship before the Lord. That's important. I'm not denying that. We should have that moment. But when you look at it in 1 Corinthians 11, it's all about you went first before your brothers. Shouldn't have done that. Why is it all about unity? Because this is about the body of Christ, bread, blood, and we are the body. And if we're doing things that are opposing one another, we're basically saying the body is divided. Which means if a body is divided, it's what? Dying. It's dead. It's like saying Christ is not alive. That is essential. The symbol of of Lord's Supper is unity for the name of Jesus Christ and remembering Him. We are a unified body for him. Okay. Um, so with that being said, I don't know if I have a whole lot. That uh, Let me see if I have another slide on this. I don't. So this is the slide that for all the details, if you need to write any of those down. But I just, I just want to make sure that you come away with that understanding. Um, and, and I think Steve has talked about pretty much everything else here that we have already. Unity of the body of Christ. That's what it means to partake in a worthy way of the Lord. When, it's, when Paul says, uh, you need to partake of the, the bread and the, the wine in, um, in a worthy way. It needs to be done in unity. That's why it's important when you have something against someone else, it's good to go and reconcile. Reconcile that relationship because you're picturing the unity of the body of Christ. All right, I'm out of time. I don't think I have any time for questions on this, but you can always come up afterwards and I can try to answer as best I can. So let's let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk about baptism and talk about the Lord's Supper. Uh, These are two really important pictures. One, to remember you, 
to be to show the unity of the body of Christ. It's kind of almost like a realignment for the body of Christ to be on one the, the same page, to be that one new man that you've called us to be. And then baptism, our identification with you. You died the death we should have died. You drowned in the Red Sea, so to speak. So that we don't have to drown. Help us to identify with you in baptism. Not just physically, but may we know what that really means for our lives. We are associating with you and will live the rest of our lives for you and even go to our death for you because you died for us. Lord, only you can enable us to do that. Help us, we pray. Thank you for this morning, and we just pray that as we finish off the series on the humanity of Christ, may we just be enthralled by the humanity, especially in the context of his deity, and recognize what a miracle the humanity and and the divinity of Christ is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming and uh, looking forward to seeing you in the service.